Okay, uh, Brother Dewey asked me if I'd wrap up something from this morning or this afternoon, early afternoon, that I wasn't able to finish, and then I'll jump into Jonah. Here, I'm going to give you an example of one of these. So um, up on the screen, you have, uh, there, there are different features that we talked about, and uh, one of them, uh, the ones I had to skip were dramatic imagery. And uh, so, and I'm going to give you some examples of that tomorrow. But there's more to say there. But I also had something on word play, which is what you see on the screen there. And a word play, when you have kind of two or three words that occur in sequence in a passage, there's, the writer uses those words for a reason. There's kind of a bit of a connection he intends. And, and the reason you have good word play is that a, a word is what they call polyvalent or can have multiple meanings, right? And so... So you have to pay attention. Sometimes they're very, very obvious in the English, and other times commentaries will help you. And, and, and the point is, a word can have multiple meanings on the one hand, and there are various words like that, like the word in Hebrew that means righteousness, could be righteousness, justice, judgment, punishment. And then there are words that are identical in appearance that can have different meanings. And so... Uh, we'll look at some examples. So anyway, uh, I want you to see here the, the next slide. Then we have um, the first kind that I'm going to look at, only two kinds for time, is the idea of simple repetition, same basic meaning. So look over to Habakkuk chapter 1. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Or you can move back from Malachi if you want to. And it's... Uh, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Habakkuk. So Habakkuk, and uh, this is one that you can see in English where the prophet is introducing a bit of a zinger. Now we're going to look at Habakkuk in our last message on Monday where the prophet himself is moaning and groaning about God's inactivity in the face of Israel's covenant treachery their practice of social injustice, taking advantage of one another, practicing violence in the land. When are you going to do about something about this God? Then God gives him an answer he's not too happy with. But, but look at, as part of Habakkuk's complaint in verses 2 and 3, you can hear the angst in Habakkuk's voice. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about, in this word, violence? It's interesting, it's, that isn't what it means, but it, it, the word is Hamas. Yeah, that's the same name as the group in Gaza. <laughs> They're violent ones, but it's another thing. So, uh, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice, and why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. So he's moaning and groaning about this. We'll look more about this on, this on Monday. But notice that God gives an answer in verse, verses 5 and following. And the short answer is, is I'm going to bring a, the nation of Babylon to judge you as a covenant people because you're going to receive covenant curse. That's going to be God's answer. And he's been patiently waiting and calling for repentance and showing grace. But his patience is about to end and his... And, and, and it's exhausted almost. So I want you to look at God's answer, and he tells, 
He talks about looking up to look at the nations and observe, be utterly astounded. For something is taking place in your days, you'll not believe it when you hear about it. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. But look at verse 9. And all of them, and they're going to come by way of verse 8, horses swifter than leopard, more fierce than the wolves in the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. I mean, all these pictures are not happy thoughts for, uh, for God's people because all these images are describing this kind of violent conquest. And all of them come to do what? What does your text say? Violence. Faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. So violence in verses 2 and 3 refers to the violence taking place in Judean society during Habakkuk's time. It's Israelite on Israelite violence. Horrible treatment of one another. And then in verse 9, the prophet says violence, and he refers to the violent character of the Babylonians whom the Lord will use to judge God's people and the violent evildoers of Judah. And in this passage, the repetition of the term violence draws attention to the appropriate nature of the punishment. The violent will be destroyed by the violent. The punishment matches the crime. Now, Habakkuk doesn't like that at all. But, 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 you can't do that, God, because they're a wicked nation. They're worse than we are. How can you use them to judge us? We'll talk more about that on Monday. But I want you to see that the, the violence is there kind of as a zinger. Yeah, you're moaning and groaning, understandably, as you're, you're surrounded by inequity and injustice and violence and corruption, and you long for me to intervene. We have to understand that my intervention, the covenant treachery, is going to bring a violent nation to judge violent Judah. And so there's a wordplay there that's intentional to kind of connect the punishment with the crime, not always in a fun way for the recipients, because they're going to be those that get kind of chewed up and spit out in the process, who are godly Israelites. So again, when you look at that, sometimes when you see a, the same word being, being used, you can use different tools that are available online to show you the basic Hebrew word of Strong's Concordance. Commentaries might help you with this Bible study books, but this violence, violence is a word play to demonstrate the appropriateness of God's punishment. And I could point you to scores of other examples of this. We're like in a passage in, um, in Amos that talks about the, the wicked and arrogant who are, you know, they use the finest, the first lotions, and they, they do the best, they have the finest wines, the first wines. And in, in, in the latter part, it says, you guys are going to be first in exile. Huh, what do you know? Me first, me first. Well, we'll let you go first in the punishment part. And it's like, zing, you're right. So uh, there's a punishment that matches the crime. Here's another kind of wordplay that isn't as obvious. And the commentators will help you with this, but turn over to Zephaniah, another book you've probably spent a lot of time in. Okay, so... Uh, right after Habakkuk... And there's this word, and I give it up there, the transliteration of it. It's a PQD, pakad. And in this time, it's the same word being used, but because a word can be polyvalent or can have different meanings, you have to know the context. 
I mean, like, think about it in English. Okay, I love lasagna. I'm Italian, right? Makes sense. I love lasagna. I love my wife. Okay, maybe I really like lasagna. <laughs> I mean, my, the love of lasagna and the love for my wife are not the same, right? So there, you can have the same word used and maybe a different note of emphasis. So in Zephaniah, Zephaniah is a book. Uh, the first chapter is more like crunch. God's going to punish his people. And then chapters two and three are what's going to follow that after a period of time as a judged people, that the time is coming in the, in the distant future when the Lord brings the tribulation to an end. He's going to establish his kingdom on earth and he's going to return and bless his people because they're going to pursue a relationship with him. But in chapter one, Verses 8 and 9, notice it says, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish. And that's that word PQD, paked. And it means visit, number, appoint. But I will visit. I will visit. I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. Hey, I don't know how you, what you do with your children, and I'm not, uh, you know, going to require you to do it like we did, but we had a certain room that, more often than not, uh, the discipline was exercised, right? The Board of Education was applied to the seat of learning. And so, uh, but it was done tastefully in the sense of carefully and all of that. But, you know, this, that's not a visit the kids wanted. Let, let's visit in that room. And uh, that was not a visit they wanted because it was a kind of a judgment visit, right? But that's that word, same word here, where the Lord says, I'm going to visit, I'm going to punish, I'm going to visit the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. I will punish those who skip over the threshold carelessly, go to the temple, fill their master's house with violence and deceit. And then you have in chapter 2, you have this call to repentance. God's going to judge the nations who have oppressed God's people. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. In the context of judging the nations that were oppressing God's people and in the context of this deliverance God is bringing on behalf of his people, it says the coastlands will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah, the folks that survived the covenant curse, the judgment that God brought against them and eventually pursued God by faith. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon, for the Lord, their God, will visit them and restore their fortunes. Now, in, in verses 8 to 9, a number of translations go with the idea of punish. And yet in verse 7, the, the same verb talks about visiting his people for good. And, and the idea of, go to the next line. Yeah, the verb paket in 2.9 refers to the Lord visiting his people for good, like Holman Christian Standard Bible has, he'll return to them, net Bible, it will intervene for them. And the word play is highlighting the idea of reversal from judgment to salvation in God's treatment of his chosen people. And so the prophet uses the same word with his different nuances to drive a point home. The visit that was totally appropriate by their covenant treachery that's going to be punishment isn't the end of the story. There's a coming visit that because of the way the context is and even the, the, the preposition that goes with the word, 
is that visit of restoration, the visit of blessing, the visit of forgiveness to his people. And so the, the word is used both for the bad news and the good news because they're connected, right? The God who brings covenant curse against his people is the God who loves his people and longs to restore them as he will in his time and his place for his glory through his spirit to drive his people through the hardship of the tribulation to look at him whom they have pierced for all Israel will be saved and the Lord will visit and restore their fortunes to their people. And there are other examples. Those are just the ones I picked here. I'm going to talk about one today, tonight in the message in Jonah at the end of the book. There's another similar kind of a word play. And my point simply is, if you're in the prophets, especially in a, a judgment speech where you have this accusation against God's people, this is what you've done in an announcement of judgment against them, you're going to see a correspondence. That's where, like when I said, the finest wines, the finest oils, the, the best of this, first, 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 the Hebrew word is like head, top, first, you'll be first going to exile. It's like zing. He uses the word intentionally in that announcement of judgment with their accusation because the covenant matches, the, 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 the punishment, sorry, matches the crime. The, and the theological point we can take away, one of them is, is that this is not a, a God hissy fed, a God temper tantrum, a God just kind of blowing up. No, it's a patient God who has seen his people commit to covenant treachery and he brings to them a, a punishment appropriate to their treachery. I mean, you've read books or seen movies before where you have the guy you love to hate. I mean, he's the bum of the universe. And you just can't wait for him to get crunched. And when the time comes in the script and he gets crunched, it's like, oh, that feels so good. Because the bum gets removed. Right? There's relief. And that's what happens here to demonstrate the appropriateness of what God is doing. He's not a malicious, hateful God in the Old Testament, unlike the one in the New Testament. No, he's a God who does exactly what he said he would do if they are committed to covenant treachery. Oh, yeah, there's some other ones I could talk about. I'm going to talk about one in the Jonah, in the book of Jonah. But um, if you have questions about that, we'll come back to that. I just wanted to, Brother Dewey asked me if I would just wrap that up, and I'll do another one today, and we'll see one again in Micah. Sorry. My Dropbox is misbehaving. All right. So in your, in your Bibles, turn back to Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So after Amos, before Micah, we have Jonah, and Obadiah is in there too, but after Obadiah. All right, so the issue of Jonah, you have various themes you could give the book of Jonah, and uh, I've chosen to pursue one theme here. It isn't the only theme you could pursue. And um, it's the idea of spiritual unselfishness or being willing to embrace God's agenda regardless. Before we look there, let's, uh, I'll just pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the word that you've given us and its clarity and its power. And I pray through your spirit that you'd help us to feel the convicting force of your word through your spirit, through this frail servant, in a way that would help us 
be more able to have an eternally significant life in, a, in the world where you've put us. Lord, I pray that we would want to pursue your agenda above all else, even though it might be uncomfortable, and, and shake us out of our comfort level at times and prevent us from focusing on our needs and our wants and our fortresses with our walls. And remember, we've been placed in the world to make a difference with eternal significance. Help us to that end, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just to introduce the subject in uh, World War II, I'm a history lover. So World War II, as in any war, bridges across rivers and canyons were essential for the swift progress of any army. And uh, in the old days, it was tougher to bring down a bridge, but in World War II, there were lots of explosives, explosives and the Germans had wired, you know, put, put explosive in bridges to blow them up so they would slow down the Allied forces. So in the hours of darkness before the main invading force hit, the shores of Normandy, various paratroop units parachuted in uh, way ahead of the troops. Why? To secure and guard bridges. Because if those bridges were gone, the place is going to turn to a standstill. Kind of controlling those assets was absolutely essential for speedy advance as the main attacking force works inland. So keeping those bridges open was an important part of the battle strategy. And sometimes if a bridge was destroyed, you had engineering units that would come and set up a pontoon bridge or prefabricated bridge to keep the traffic moving across to be able to push the Germans back toward Germany. Now keep in mind that those bridges we're talking about were protected or erected not to just serve as some memorial to see. Wow, isn't that an impressive bridge? That wasn't the point. It was an avenue to go across so the army could move forward. You know, in the realm of human relationships, each one of us represents a hub of a number of bridges to different people. We have various kinds of relationships with people. Some of them are God-given. Parents, siblings, relatives. We have bridges that are connections with those relatives. Others, we seek to begin and develop. Friends, wives, husbands, things we pursue in life. And others are simply ours because we rub shoulders with people at work, and school, or neighborhoods. We have all this so, at a horizontal level, person to person, we all have this whole network of bridges around us that touch different lives. We have those connections. And then in addition, most importantly, since mankind was made in the image of God according to the image of God, every person has the capacity for a relationship with God, this vertical relationship. So we have all these, these spokes going out, these bridges going out to other people, relationships that I have with different kinds of people, different categories of people, but most importantly, if we're a human being, we have the capacity of a relationship with God, and if we're Christ followers, we're believers, we have a vibrant, eternal faith relationship with God through Christ, his son. God initiates that relationship. We must respond by faith, and that relationship begins. For some of you, it was longer ago than others, others less time ago. And I'm assuming most of us here have entered into a relationship with God by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ as the perfect sacrifice at Calvary and his death is totally sufficient to provide us the forgiveness of sin and sins we desperately need. And because of that salvation, we've been eternally and infinitely blessed by God. Think about it. 
No longer the slaves of Satan, we have the privilege of serving the all-powerful God. No longer do we face eternal condemnation in hell, but the glories of eternally being in the presence of God are before us. No longer do we have vast emptiness in our life, or promised life and life more abundantly. We're forgiven, part of God's family. Life has purpose, and on and on the list could go. I mean, we are amazingly blessed people, right? And besides the blessing of salvation, God is good to us on a daily basis. Every breath is a blessing from the hand of God. Every day is another opportunity and privilege of serving our loving Lord and making a difference in our world. Every moment is ours due to the kindness and protection of our God. We're truly a blessed people. But I wonder, and I ask myself this question too, as we consider the amazing, abundant blessings we enjoy in Christ, are we unselfish in pursuing God's agenda in the world where he's put us. So I have this whole set of spokes coming out of my life, right? Relatives, friends, relationships I've pursued, people I just rub shoulders with. Am I going through life oblivious to all of that? Pursuing my own agenda? Filling my own pockets? You know, just taking care of things that are satisfying to me at a moment? We're asking God to help me take advantage of and make full use of those relationships for eternal significance. So even beyond that, let me ask you a couple of other questions. Do we live in a needy world? Well, of course, desperately needy. Then as we rub shoulders with people, saved and unsaved alike, who are needy, Are we sensitive to their needs? Do we perceive their needs, believer or unbeliever? And as we consider the multiple blessings bestowed upon us by God, those marvelous blessings that God has poured into our lives, eternal and infinite blessings, do these marvelous blessings have any impact at all on how I view the web of relationships that are around me? So in other words, as we recognize the, all the blessings we enjoy in Christ, are we selfish? Are we self-focused? Are we pursuing our own agenda? Or are we wanting to capture those relationships for eternal significance to the best of our ability and the guidance of the Holy Spirit? I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only bonehead in the room, right? But um, we are so easily consumed by selfish pursuits and filling our lives of things that are things we like and the activities we enjoy. And personally, I find it challenging to witness to the lost. doesn't mean I shouldn't, and it doesn't mean that if I don't, I'm not disobeying God. But my point is, is it's easy to get off track. So what I'm encouraging you to think about here as we prepare for Jonah is that our salvation, having these infinite eternal blessings poured into our lives, should affect our entire outlook on life. Why we're here. What are our ultimate responsibilities? Where should our greatest passions be? And as a believer, as a Christ follower, you and me, should have as our prime objective to bring God glory to demonstrate a surpassing character to the watching world. The burning passion of your and my heart should be to show the world what God is like. 
The crowning goal of any believer is to bring honor to his name. Our greatest career aspiration should be to clearly demonstrate God's character to those around us and how we live and what we say. And all of these bridges or relationships that we have around us, these spokes that go out from us with other people fit into that primary objective. Each of those bridges presents an opportunity to fulfill my God-given task. So there's all kinds of categories I could refer to, but let me just start where I try to start in my heart. See, when I think about our responsibility to lift up God's name, to advertise his character, to, to glorify him, I, I don't think, even though I have a, a, a burning passion for the four corners of the world and for stuff that Justin and his family are doing and Rob Kensinger and others, to see the name of Christ is put on display and presented to lost people who need Christ and the believers are growing Christ in all those settings. I always try to start in that circle right around me. I ask, what does my sweet wife Martha Ann know about who God is and what God does more clearly by the way I love her and care for her and pursue her? What do my kids know about this awesome God that consumes my heart that I'm demonstrating to them in the way I respond to them in good and bad times, the way I speak to them, the way I pursue them, the way I bring God's word to bear in their lives? What do my brothers and sisters in our adult Bible fellowship at church or the larger church body know about who God is by Mike Crisanti being there? What are the law? What is the lost? You can see the circles going out there. And my point is, I'm just saying that if, if we've been those who have been eternally and infinitely blessed by these amazing salvation enrichments, is it making a difference in your life and my life? We need to, God has given those bridges and relationships to us for a reason. We need to make use of those relationships. We need to walk across those bridges to share the gospel of Christ, to give an encouraging word, to shepherd a heart. My kids are not on autopilot, right? I mean, they've, they've inherited their sinful nature from me. And so I still have shepherding opportunities, even though from 36 down to 19, I'm not telling them what to do the same way I did when they were eight. But those are relationships I have that I have to redeem. I have to, I have to capture. I have to take advantage of for God's glory. So the challenge is, is sometimes we're spiritually selfish. We're quite stingy with the gospel or the life-changing, transforming power of salvation or the, the challenge and the edification of God's word. And the prophet Jonah has something to say to us in that regard. As we consider the life of the prophet Jonah tonight, here would be my key idea. You're in my appreciation an experience of the riches of God's mercy and grace should not cause us to pursue our own agenda, to be selfish with the mercy and grace of God, to go our own way, but glad to pursue his agenda, to share that mercy and grace, that word of God, the, those shepherding thoughts with those around us. So I just wonder, do you and I review our relationships with each other around us from God's perspective? In the, see, in the prophet Jonah, we're going to see an example, sadly, of one who, although he was wonderfully blessed, I think he was a prophet who had a faithful relationship with God, even though he was in a heart condition now that was not good. In the prophet Jonah, we see an example of one who, although he was wonderfully blessed, he was totally uninterested in pursuing God's agenda that God gave him. He was uninterested in sharing those blessings 
with others in need, even the dirty, rotten, no-good Assyrians, who had been an oppressor to God's people for over 100 years. Not interested. So the book of Jonah, I, would say, I suggest to you that I think it's a good news book at the end. The book of Jonah gives us a front row seat in observing God's dealings with his calloused-hearted prophet. And as we look at the book, we'll see what God does and why in order to mold his prophet into a man with a burden for others who embraces God's agenda for the people in that world. We see God's work to change Jonah's heart to make it more like his own. So I do think that Jonah gives us this, I'm sure he's shaking his head as we get a window into his hard-hearted life. But I think he does that as a man who is impacted, transformed, changed through the work of God throughout the book. So as we, we're going to start before I have some three outline points in your note packet, but I'm going to just kind of give a quick overview of the book, the look at those three main outline points. So it's like a book study, but um, so I'm going to quickly do a, you know, a 10,000 foot high survey of the book. So let me just quickly do that and then we'll stop and, and look at three main ideas. One, we think of verse, verse two, we have his commission where the Lord says to Jonah in verse two, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness has confronted me. And we're told later on how long they have before they're going to be destroyed. And he, what does Jonah do? I mean, this is a guy who, he's a prophet. He would know God's word and God's power and his strength. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish. So it's like Assyria's that way, and he goes this way. So if you think of the Mediterranean seaboard, Lebanon is to the north, Israel to the south, Assyria's to the east. Tarshish was like as far west as you could go in the known world. He was going the opposite direction, ran away from the Lord, wanted nothing to do with God's agenda that God has set before him with total clarity. So he goes down to a coastal city named Joppa, buys a ticket, hops on the, the ship. So we have God's means of returning Jonah, the storm. Verses four and following, we read that the Lord hurled a violent wind in the sea. And such a violent storm arose in the sea that ship, the ship threatened to break apart. And the, soul, the sailors are legitimately afraid. I mean, they've been on the sea before, but this thing is a monster storm to them. So they're tossing cargo left and right to lighten the ship. So it won't just take water and sink to the bottom. Terrified, it says they were afraid in verse Five and they cried out each to his own God. And where's Jonah? He's somehow he's sleeping in the bottom of the ship in a deep sleep. And finally, they the car goes overboard and they figure out we need to get some bigger coverage because it's not going away. Maybe there's some other gods we haven't covered because they're good polytheists. The more gods that are happy, the better. So let's go get Jonah. This guy, what the, the bonehead is down there sleeping in the, in the bottom of the ship. Let's go get him. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. They're hoping to chance around the right God who might be causing this. Then he casts lots. He, and Jonah doesn't say a word. He casts lots. And this is one of those like dice or colored stones or whatever. And okay, Grisani's blue and Joe's green and whatever. And it comes up green. J Pastor Lum is the bad guy. Sorry. <laughs> kind of. Um, 
So the, the lots single out Jonah. Everybody's looking at the guy the lot pointed to. So tell us who's to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business? Where are you from? So on. And the answer is, I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, he's, he's kind of afraid too. What is it you've done? And the men knew he was fleeing from his God's presence, but there are lots of gods out there. Who cares? He had told them he was leaving from his God's presence. And they said, what do we do to you to calm the sea that's against us? And uh, he says, pick me up and throw me overboard. And they're not too excited about that. And they ask God not to hold them responsible for his innocent blood. But they do it. They toss him over, cast him to the sea. What's his chance of survival? I mean, zero. He's in the ocean deep place. He understood he was responsible. And then what do you have? He sinks, eventually, down he's going. And we have in chapter 2, 117, it says here, now the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. So there's deliverance. Okay, what does Jonah deserve? We'll see this again later. Death. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. What in the Old Testament law did to do with witches? They stoned them. So he went toe-to-toe with God and said, no, I'm going my way. He deserved death, but experienced God's grace. Chapter 2, verse 10. It says here, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So God delivered Jonah and delivered him back onto dry land. And I don't think the fish took him all the way down the Cape of Good Hope around the southern end of Africa and brought him up through the Arabian Sea and spit him out right near Babylon. He had only a short walk, a few hundred miles, a couple hundred miles to go to Nineveh. I think he, he spit him out right at Joppa where he started. <laughs> okay, Jonah, head over. And he does. He goes to Nineveh, makes that 900 or 1,000 mile journey. The word of the Lord came to him a second time in chapter three, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up on Nineveh according to the Lord's command. And uh, he, went, he went around and he preached that in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Boy, that's a touchy, feel-good, warm-your-heart message, right? <laughs> and uh, he probably did it with great enthusiasm, we'll see, because he was hoping against hope that's what would happen. And then to his shock, the men of Nineveh believed in God. Okay, there are different interpretive options here, and I'll just give you the Grisani take, and we can have the arm wrestling match later. But um, I don't think this was like the entire city of Nineveh became believers in, in God by faith and had eternal life as a result of it. I think there was a belief that there was a God in heaven that was serious enough to wipe them out, and we better get our act together. They came back, and, and, and as a result, God brought them back from the precipice of judgment. But they, 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 they dressed and they had a fast, they sackcloth, in ashes, greatest to the least, the king got off of his throne, took off his royal robe and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. I mean, these folks are serious, hoping to get the attention of this God not to wipe them out. And he, he gives them some rules and instructions. In verse 10, oh, Jonah didn't like this at all. And then God saw their actions. 
that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. Now again, I think God allowed them to come back from the brink of extinction. We're going to see Nahum in a couple of messages where that patience runs out because they return to their wickedness and God is going to bring judgment against them. But they're spared. He shows mercy and grace to them. To Jonah, the, the guy who should be pursuing God's agenda, right? God is the one who put him up to this. God is the one who said you should do this. And then they experience mercy and grace. What a great thing. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. And he ends up thinking he's, he'd better die. He'd be better dead than live. And then the Lord is going to teach him a lesson here at the end of chapter 4. So that's the big picture. And, and just as we've summarized the story, there's three main truths I want to talk about tonight that I think have relevance to us. And that is, first of all, the burden of Yahweh. The burden of Yahweh. And my point is, uh, there's, there's a, there's a, the Israel's conduct in comparison to their calling is so widely separated that it's a grief to the awesome God's heart. Now, there are two books in the Old Testament that, are, that pay significant attention to a people other than God's chosen people. The books of Nahum and Jonah both have something to say about the Assyrian city of Nineveh and the empire. But it's incorrect to think that those books were written primarily for the benefit of the Assyrians because I think God has both of those books to say something to God's people because of their heart condition. So God has something very important to say to his chosen nation through these two prophetic messengers. In the book of Jonah, the, the sad, calloused-hearted prophet is a picture of what was characterized in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom in particular, but probably the southern kingdom as well. He lived up in the north. God's indictment of Jonah for his heart is really an indictment of the nation of Israel that had also forsaken an interest in God's agenda. So in the book of Jonah, we see fit, he sees fit to rebuke Israel and the prophet himself for their self-serving attitude of not embracing God's revealed agenda. And the book focuses on what is going on in Jonah's life and heart, but his message for the prophet has clear implications for God's people. So here's the burden of the Lord. God's heart was heavy as he saw Jonah's attitude and conduct. Jonah was more than glad to enjoy God's blessings. His relationship with God was, was not interested in modeling God's character before others or in pursuing God's agenda in a way that God explicitly revealed. And beyond that, again, the bigger picture, as I've tried to say, is that Jonah's heart problem exemplified the heart attitude of all Israel. Not interested. As a blessed individual, eternally and infinitely blessed, to grasp, to pursue, to embrace God's value system and his agenda. So why was that such a problem? Well, first of all, Israel's divine commission. We go back to what we looked at this morning. Look at Exodus 19.6. I told you that this afternoon, I mean earlier this afternoon, in Exodus 19, I would, you know, we have the Lord has brought God's people to the base of Mount Sinai and chapter 20 is going to give them the Mosaic law, Ten Commandments, and the other laws. And, uh, and before he gives them the Ten Commandments, in chapter 19, he introduces the rationale for that law, the Ten Commandments, the following laws, and he tells them, I'm the one who brought you here. I delivered you from Egypt, brought you across the Red Sea, brought you to Mount Sinai, and here's the deal. 
with this covenant that's just around the corner, a few verses away in chapter 20, if you'll hear my voice, if you'll listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, the one I'm about to begin here in a few verses, that is, includes laws they're supposed to keep, the result of that would be you're going to function as my own treasured possession. Although the whole list of mine will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the idea I said earlier today is that the core concept of all three of those is the idea of representation. There's an intimacy that's indicated by this relationship between his people that would be demonstrated by their loyalty, by their inside-out loyalty, that radically different life that they would live if they in a heartfelt way obeyed God's commands, it'd be like, whoa, that's amazing. And so it would represent God's character as they lived out righteousness and equity and kindness and grace and mercy, showing the world what God was like. And, and just for a moment, turn over to Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19. In the group I joined this morning, I mentioned that verse, but the, the point is in, in Exodus 19, you're right before the law starts to be given. And in Deuteronomy 26, 16, it's right after the last bit of the repetition of the law ends. So these are like bookends at both ends. And, and Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19 sounds familiar. And the Lord has declared this day that, that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made. And you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. You will represent him. And remember the idea of being exalted in a place isn't pat them on the back. It's let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The, the point is that the ultimate agenda of God giving them the law was to enable them to have a concrete idea of how they could live a life that was radically different than the world around them and that would put God's surpassing character on display both to each other as Israelites and to the nations around them. So God gave them that task of representing him to each other and the surrounding nations. Israel was to be a showcase of God's character. They were to be manifesting God's character by being a holy people. And I would be the first to say, I want to make sure I emphasize this, the book of Jonah, I don't think that in the Old Testament that the Lord ever commissioned Israel to be a nation of world-traversing missionaries. We're all grateful for Justin and his family and what God is doing through them in Lebanon and they're, they're answering God's call that's evident in the New Testament. I think in the Old Testament it was more of being a banner nation, a witness to the people that would come near the neighborhood, near the area. And it was to manifest God's character in that way. And then in the New Testament, God adds, that's still what God wants. He wants that life witnessed. But in the New Testament, in the wake of the coming of Christ, he adds this centrifugal far-flung, four corners of the world impact of folks sharing the gospel as is modeled for us in the book of Acts and the epistles. So in the Old Testament setting, for the most part, God's people were to manifest God's character to the world around them by means of their separateness, by being holy people, being distinct. So I understand that, but this commission would require an outlook that was willing to bring the knowledge of Yahweh to other people at Yahweh's commands. I mean, the point is, the Israelites shouldn't have been so consumed with their own interests that they weren't willing to pursue this radically different life that shows up by inside-out loyalty in a way that would show God's character to each other and the people passing by. It would be their heart longing to be able to be a light that others would see for God's glory. 
maybe traveling to other countries is a norm. But the point is here even more than that. A person totally committed to representing God to the world, embracing his, his agenda, would wholeheartedly pursue what God explicitly demanded of him. And Jonah was uninterested. No thanks. And that's where we see the conflict. So we've seen the Israel's divine commission there to represent God before the watching world. And then think about Israel and Jonah's disobedient conduct. Now you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25, we read about the prophet Jonah was from Gath Hefer, a well-known city, of course, I'm teasing, up uh, just past Nazareth. But he ministered during the days of a guy named Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. And who's he? Well, Jeroboam II, when he was king in the northern kingdom, they called this the golden age of the divided monarchy because when Jeroboam II up north and Uzziah in the southern kingdom were kings, the, the, the holdings of the northern and the southern kingdoms almost approximated that enjoyed during the time of Solomon. It was like this regional significance once again. Wealth, abundance, full pockets. So during Jonah's day, Israel was one of the largest and most influential countries along the eastern Mediterranean seaboard, a time of great prosperity. And as usual, unfortunately, great prosperity and influence leads to selfishness and sin. Pursuit of our own agendas. Not needing God as desperately as maybe we needed him before. The prophets Amos and Hosea, which you should read sometime, who also prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, speak against the godlessness of this age. The injustice and the lack of righteousness. Israelite, and Israelite violence was dominant. So in the midst of all of this prosperity and affluence, the people and Jonah, as a picture of that, became so caught up with their own affairs that they were indifferent with regard to the situation around them. They weren't interested in carrying out their God-given task, pursuing God's agenda, even though in Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 26 and other places, God had commissioned his chosen nation to represent him, to put on display his surpassing character to each other and to the world around them, to show what God was like. The nation of Israel and Jonah were absolutely uninterested in things that were important to God. So Jonah shares the indifference of the nation. And what did Jonah do when God commanded him to go and preach in Nineveh? I mean, shockingly, he, he absolutely rebelled. It isn't like he, oh, yes, Lord, glad to do it, and he kind of sneaks off quietly. It's like he just, and, and God wouldn't know. He heads off the other direction. And in verse 3, it's like, of chapter 1 of Jonah, it seemed just like a basic rebellion issue. He didn't want to go for some reason. No apparent reason is given there, but after Jonah tries to flee from his task, is swallowed by the great fish, is delivered back to shore, has traveled and then preached to its inhabitants, and he has seen the Lord withdraw the promised punishment, the real reason for Jonah's rebellion becomes obvious. And this is part of the burden on God's heart. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. It says in verse 2, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. He knew this. And by the way, that collection of attributes happens about 12 times like a hymn repeated in the Old Testament. Jonah knew that his going to Nineveh to bear God's message of coming judgment could be God's tool to lead to the repentance of some kind of the inhabitants of Nineveh. And since Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be spared from this judgment, wanted them to be destroyed, didn't want them to experience God's mercy and grace, even though that may have been part of God's agenda, because they were an oppressor to them for a century, barbarically cruel people, he wanted them to be destroyed. He was unwilling to go. He had, a, he had a calloused heart, a selfish heart, uninterested in God's agenda. So when it came to the desperate needs of those outside of his immediate world, his fortress, he was unconcerned. In verse 3, notice what he says. He says, And now, Lord, please take my life from me because it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> he had a little pity party for himself. He was so opposed to sparing for God to, for, he was so opposed to God sparing the Ninevites that he preferred death to living with the knowledge that he might have had a part in that extension of grace and mercy to these bums, to these Ninevites who would be spared from judgment. So imagine this. Think about that connection. The nation of Israel and Jonah had been commissioned by the Lord as a people of his to be a showcase of God's glory to the surrounding world, to each other as Israelites as well as to the surrounding nations. And yes, primarily by being a passive witness, by doing it, being a banner nation. But in the midst of their affluence and relative security in the time of Jeroboam II, they could care less for the needs of those outside of their immediate world, especially even when God explicitly commands him to go. That hard-heartedness is just put on display, even though it was mainly being practiced in the boundaries of Israel. So consequently, the Lord's heart was burdened with the contradiction between their calling and their conduct. And you know, there's, that's really practical to us. As we consider our God-given function in today's world, where do we stand? And we've been, we're here as a Christ follower, we're believers, the Lord has invested eternal and infinite blessings into our lives. We, it's astounding to think about what is part of the gospel transformation, right? So as God examines our life and our ministry, yours and mine, is the heart of God delighted by our passion to pursue his agenda and to have a life that counts for eternity? And our life manifests our, commi our, our commitment to that and what we dream about, what we hope to do, how we spend our time, how we invest our resources? Or is our, or as God examines our life and ministry, is the heart of God burdened by a great gulf fixed between what he has commissioned us to be and to do and what we actually are and doing? Well, that's convicting to me. I'm a seminary prof. I serve in the church. But so often we can get so busy with non-eternal things, with things of immediate value, that we don't give enough attention to things of ultimate value. So you, you never are immune from the challenge of getting off track. Right? Praise God and pursuing him and I'm trying to live a life that counts for his glory but none of us are above the Jonah problem and you might ask did Jonah know any better 
Had God been clear and precise in laying before Israel and the prophet Jonah the kind of character he expected from his chosen people? Well, yeah. We've seen the burden of the Lord in light of Jonah and the nation's hard heart. Consider me the character of the Lord, the second main point, because that's what God has clearly revealed. It wasn't a knowledge problem here. In verse 2, he says, for the character of Yahweh, he says, that's why I fled in the first place. I knew that you are, and here are the words. Jonah himself gives us a marvelous character, a summary of his character of the Lord. He tells us this is precisely why he fled to Tarsha. She knew in no uncertain terms that his God was characterized by these important traits. They're up here. What hadn't they impacted? He hadn't impacted his heart in a way that showed up in his life. So here are the five traits that he knew so well that didn't impact his heart or his conduct. God is a gracious God. You are a, it says, in my translation, you're merciful, but the idea is the word for grace. This refers to God as the generous giver of blessings that are undeserved, like in the New Testament, it's undeserved blessing. The giver of grace is the superior. The one who gives grace is under no obligation to be gracious. There's nothing that the person who's going to receive this grace has done to merit this, or to trigger God, or obligate God to do this. No, it's totally unmerited, unsolicited, and amazing. The recipient of grace has no merit to justify any such treatment. He's a gracious God. I mean, in chapter 4, Jonah, we'll see this again later, I'll say it, but Jonah is alive at that time because of God's grace. He deserved a glub, glub, glub sink and never be seen again. But God delivered him, brought him back to dry land. He's a God of grace. He knew that. He's a God of compassion, a compassionate God. This word refers to God extending compassion, not only to those who don't deserve it, but to those who desperately need it. The word for merciful here is closely related to the word for a woman's womb. It's, it's, an illustra- it's another kind of a little image, if you will, from the word. It, it suggests an illustration for the meaning of this virtue. The word stresses the feelings of compassion a mother would feel for her child, the product of her womb. I mean, it's like this radar moms have, right? Or their ear, you know, some of us guys are kind of guys, right? But you're in, the, you're in the park, and they're playing in the swings, and you know, there are you know, 84 kids there, and you, then, mommy! And it's like, ah! this is, that's my child. I mean, there's this connection. So that's the picture here, the tender, loving care of a mother that a mother gives to her child is illustrative of the compassion God feels for a spiritual condition because there's a connection. There's a relationship he's been pursuing with his chosen people, a relationship he has been fixed in his commitment to. So you can be sure however strong a mother feels for her child, God's compassion for his children, his chosen people, exceeds that infinitely. So Jonah knew that God was a God of grace. He was a compassionate God. He was slow to anger. As an essential part of his character, God withholds his judgment on sin or patiently endures as he gives sinners the opportunity to repent. We'll see in Habakkuk, in Habakkuk as he's moaning and groaning. But how long will it be before you intervene, God? I'm surrounded by covenant treachery. It isn't that God is asleep. 
that God is just out of touch. Amazingly, shockingly, God is a God who is patient and is slow to anger to provide time to repent. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Slow to anger, wanting to grant time for repentance. So he's long to anger. He's ever so slow to reach the point where he feels he must express his divine wrath. He is long-suffering to those who are falling short of his desires, yearning that before judgment falls, they'll repent of their godless practices. So he's not a God who's just trying to blow things up as quickly as he can. Try to destroy sinners immediately. He's longing to see repentance and restoration. He's abundant in steadfast love. You know, the, the steadfast love, the word here is closely connected to the covenant God made with his people. We'll talk more about it in Micah tomorrow morning, but it seems to highlight the determination of God to be faithful to his covenant and thereby to his people. It's this fixed, loyal, covenant, steadfast love. Loving kindness, loyalty, lots of words are used for it. It refers to God's persistent, sure, covenant love for his people all through the ages. Now, that isn't directly to, to Nineveh because they weren't part of his of relationship with him by faith. But that's, Jonah's just giving us this litany of character traits that demonstrate who God is. And he's a God who does what he promises. And then the last one, one who relents from punishment. If men repent, God is willing to withdraw his promised punishment. He's willing to change the course that he had set. And it isn't, the, it isn't that God hasn't figured it out and he just kind of can't make up his mind. Read Jeremiah 18 sometime when it talks about the, the, the potter and the clay. And, and it says that the God is a God who if he promises to bless a people and they, they turn from him and rebel and pursue covenant treachery, he will switch to judgment. And if he promises to curse the people, to judge them, and if there's some kind of change in the ground, there is some kind of repentance, he will withdraw the promised punishment. In that sense, he hasn't changed who he is, and he knows what he's doing. The end, the end story is the same for him. But he's a God who's willing to relent from punished, promised punishment. Now think of it. Jonah's God and our God was known by these character traits. Gracious, giving blessings that are undeserved. Compassionate, extending passion, compassion to those desperately in need. Slow to anger, giving sinners the opportunity to repent by withholding his judgment on sin, abundant and steadfast love, firmly determined to be faithful to his people, one who relents from punishment, being willing to withdraw the promised punishment if sinners will repent. And what should Jonah have learned and what should we learn by a clear knowledge of these attributes of God? Because the question isn't whether he knew it. He tells us he knew that this was who God was. What? A couple of things, and I'm just going to do this briefly, and that is to live in, we, we were called, or oh, Jonah was called and didn't in the book, and we were called to live in accordance with those divine character traits in a way that manifests that God to the people around us. And then direct others to our great God as part of that agenda he's given us. Do I have some illustrations here to, to think that through and give some concrete examples of that? But I, 
I want you to just realize, and, and you guys can think of people and things in your life, whether it's the, you know, the spiritual headache person who is just nothing but a pain in the neck, you have a person who is desperately needy and you kind of want to just crunch, you know, just turn them away and get them out of your life. It could be all kinds of things. And then what we should do is if you think about who God is in a way that affects our life, it'd be, okay, God is a gracious God, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant and steadfast love, and willing to relent and promise punishment. That doesn't mean that the bad guys get off the hook, right? That we just kind of are permissive parents. But those are character traits should show up in day-to-day life with coworkers and with neighbors and, you know, with brothers and sisters in Christ as these things go from our head to our heart. And for sure it should impact how we view our role in those relationships all around us and bringing the gospel to bear in those relationships. So do we understand the painful significance of Jonah's confession here in chapter 4, verse 2, where he knew that God was these five things? And what he said is absolutely correct because it happens a number of times in Old Testament passages. The good news is that Jonah knew this was to be true of Yahweh, the Lord, The bad news is that this knowledge did not make one bit of difference in regard to the way that Jonah viewed the world around him or acted toward that world. Jonah did not want God to do those things that would match God's own character. And clearly did not want that for himself either. God's character had not become deeply imprinted on the depths of Jonah's being. His head knowledge had not touched his heart. How about you? How about me? So God in this book lets Jonah see his character in action and the sadness. We've seen the burden of the Lord, the character of the Lord. In order to confront Jonah with the sinfulness and selfishness of his heart, his refusal to pursue God's agenda, even though he had been blessed abundantly by God, God clearly demonstrates before Jonah the kind of God he was. So we see the activity of the Lord. The Lord wants Jonah to see this. He wants Israel to see this. He's calling his people to be a people that would live out his character in their web of relationships because that's what puts his character on display. So God provided Jonah with several personal experiences to clearly demonstrate to him what true compassion was. And all of these things were done in order to manifest divine compassion to Jonah as an example for him to follow. Here's first, the deliverance of the sailors from the storm. I mean, who cares? They're godless Gentiles, right? Doesn't matter. They're bums. They didn't deserve God's divine blessing or mercy. Though, what did God do when they tossed Jonah overboard? Could he have kept, okay, I 55 minutes? <laughs> he went back there to give me the signal. Is there a trap door here? Okay. So they're, they're, they're Gentiles. Jonah's second, Jonah's personal experience of deliverance. We've already said that when he went, was tossed overboard, he deserved to die, but God showed grace, intervened, gave him life, returned him to dry land. The deliverance of Nineveh from sure judgment is surely a sign of grace. This was a, a godless, barbarically cruel, immoral culture. Now again, I don't think that you have everybody in Nineveh is saved here. I don't think that's the case, but they repent to the point that God brings them back from the brink of extinction. He shows them grace and mercy. And then you have the object lesson of the gourd, the last part of this lesson. Remember Jonah, after chapter 3, he's really upset. I'd rather die than live. With knowing I had part of this. 
He's really upset. In verses 5 to 9, we have Jonah who goes outside the city and sets up this little hut, this shed. Give him a little shade. He's going to sit out there. Why? Why don't you go home, Jonah? Because he's waiting, hoping his hope that in 40 days, God's going to change his mind and chawoosh, wipe him out. Yes! That's what he's hoping for, I think. And the Lord does something. The Lord appoints a, a gourd, a plant, with big leaves, and it grows up quickly in a day and kind of provides shade for that hut. Uh, the sun isn't beating down on this weak structure. So he's sitting there. God gives this gourd. Jonah's happy. Ah, oh, so comfortable with that shade. The next day, the Lord sends a worm during the night to eat at the root of that gourd, and it's not a strong plant anyway, and it, ooh, it's gone. And that he sends the hot beating sun and he sends this east Sirocco Kamsim wind that just blows through, cooking him in his little hut. And he's very upset and he says, I would rather die than live again. But look at verses 10 and 11. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in night and perished in the night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which is more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between the right and the left, as well as many animals? God points out Jonah's inconsistency here. He compares the compassion, quote-unquote, that Jonah felt for the plant with the compassion God felt for Nineveh. And the point is, if you're justified in feeling compassion for the plant, why am I not justified in feeling compassion for the city, even as a pagan city? The gourd was inanimate, no eternal life principle was singular, one of them. It wasn't the work of his hands. It lasted a day, and you felt compassion. You felt concerned. Nineveh, 120,000 inhabitants, many animals, and the people of Nineveh were created by God in existence, part of people in existence since creation. They repented of their sinful ways in some fashion, and God felt compassion on them. Through that contrast, God wants Jonah to get the problem. Jonah, your, your compassion is absolutely meaningless and superficial. And here's a little wordplay I can only give a couple moments to. The bad guy's over there messing up my life. So you have this compassion occurs twice in verse 10 and verse 11. And this word compassion is about three Meanings. Again, I said a word is polyvalent, could have more than one meaning. This word has three possible meanings. It means to be troubled about, to look with compassion on, or to show pity, or to spare someone from death and judgment. So God is clearly referring, referring here to Jonah's remorse and anger when the plant died. So he, he means you're troubled about the plant because you lost the shade. In contrast to that, the superficial compassion, God's compassion was genuine and impactful. You could translate, should I not have compassion on and spare these people from, from death and judgment? Should I not show compassion? And I can't for the sake of time, but in, there, there are numerous passages where you have this affirmation that when God is talking about the covenant people because of their covenant treachery, that he will not, his eyes will not spare or show compassion. He will judge them. 
So the point is, God's mercy is available for all according to his will. And Jonah, your heart should match God's heart. So Jonah here is uh, commissioned by God to confront the inhabitants of Nineveh with their sin and the impending judgment as part of his agenda, a unique part of it. And Jonah tried his best to get out of obeying God's will because he was focused on his own needs and selfish. So I wonder, as you think about the way you're arranging your life, do you have have a life arrangement that enables you to walk across the bridges that God has given you to be a light in a dark world, to pursue redemptive opportunities, to present the gospel, to encourage, to build up, to strengthen with his word? I have a short story I'm going to give, and then I'll quit. And it's called the mayonnaise jar and coffee, and I just want you to see something here. There is a, there is a reason I think it's important. There was a professor who stood before his philosophy class and had some items in front of him. When the class began, he wordlessly, he picked up a very large and empty mayonnaise jar, let's say one of those gallon jars, pickles come in, and proceed, you don't have big families, so or maybe you know what a gallon jar of pickles is, but it's big. So he picked up this large and empty mayonnaise jar and proceeded to fill it with golf balls. And he asked the students if the jar was full and he had golf balls to the top. They agreed it was. So then he picked up a box of pebbles and poured them into the jar and he shook the jar lightly and the pebbles rolled into the open areas between the golf balls and he asked the students again if the jar was full. And they agreed it was. The professor next picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar and of course he kind of shook it around and the sand filled up what looked like everything else, and he asked once more if the jar was full, and he said, yeah. Then the prof took two cups of coffee from the table and poured them into the jar, filling all the empty spaces between the particles of sand. Students laughed. Now, said the professor, as the laughter subsided, I want you to recognize that this jar potentially represents your life. The golf balls are the important things. Your relationship with God, your family, your children, your favorite passions, the things that if everything else was lost and only they remain, life would be fully meaningful. The pebbles are the other things that matter, your job, your house, your car, things that matter but don't measure up to the golf balls. The sand is everything else, the small stuff. could be the yard that needs mowing, weeds that need pulling, you know, on and on. It could be that baseball game you want to see or that book you want to read. Good things, but Sand. Now, if you put the sand or the sand and the pebbles into the jar first, guess what there's no room for? The golf balls. The same goes for life. If you spend all of your time and energy on the small stuff and even on the moderately important stuff, you'll never have room for the things that are most important to you and to God. So pay attention to those issues that should be at the very center of your existence. You know, the... The primary point of this exhortation means to set our priorities. The golf, the golf balls first and the sand and the pebbles are, are later. And, and, and in, in regard to that, let me just wrap up here. What I want you to realize is, ask yourself this question. Because I'm, what, I'm, what I'm asking you is, are you like Jonah and you have not, you are not willingly embracing the agenda God has for your life and for this world in a way that creates a passion in your heart to make his name known? to your kids, to your grandkids, to neighbors, to schoolmates, to co-workers, or to the folks in the four corners of the world. So I'm asking myself these same questions. And by the way, this is kind of why I do what I do, spending weeks and months overseas. It's part of my heart. I have a longing 
to be a small part of what God's doing as it's needed in that world. Do we realize that our life is not our own because Christ has purchased us out of the slave market of sin? Are we, is our, what is our heart attitude? Does it relate to the spiritual needs of the world around us? Are we building fortresses and hunkering down? Are we seeing the world like God sees it and touching lives, walking across those bridges? See, my prayer is not to have Jonah's heart during most of the book, maybe Jonah's heart in the wake of what God did. I want, for you and for me, what I want is, is that we will so understand that pursuing God's agenda is the best thing we can do. And it doesn't mean you can't have a full-time job, you can't have families, you can't live in Washington. But it might not mean that. It does mean that we need to think how can I arrange my life to make sure the golf balls are in the jar? That ultimate values, core values, are at the center of my life. And yeah, I'm going to put in some pebbles and some sand. That's great. But I don't want even things of immediate value to crowd out things of ultimate value because I want to have a life and I want you to have a life that has eternal implications for the world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, you know my heart desire, and yet I have selfishness too. I do pray you'd help each of us to understand that whatever walk of life we have, whatever you've put in our life, the blessings you've brought in, even the challenges, that in the midst of all of that, that our, our passion needs to be, Lord, help us to be like Jonah after 411 of Jonah, with his heart transformed, wanting to embrace God's agenda for his glory, and to use that web of relationship, those spokes that go out from our life for your glory, for salvation of the lost, and for building up of the saints in the world where you've put us. And thank you for these brethren who I know resonate with that need. And they're part of a good church that wants to honor God's name and impact the place they're at. It's a tough, dark place. Help them not get weary in well-doing. Encourage them to keep their shoulder to the task. And if needed, to give more push. To set aside some of the pebbles in the sand out of their jar. To be able to pursue your agenda with everything they've got. And help me on that track as well. In Jesus' name, amen.